Well, we're um, kind of setting a record today. We're doing four minor prophets in one class. Um, we've got, uh, let's see where we are. Yeah, okay. There's Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and Jonah. We're going to do those four, and then in the next two weeks we'll do the rest of them. There's another record that we're setting this morning, and that is every single one of these prophets prophesies to a different nation. <laughs> we're not going to have that again. <laughs> That's just very surprising. Um, and while we're talking about strange things, two of them have some one thing in common, and that is it doesn't say when they were they were written. We have no... We have no indication when Joel was written. We have no indication when Obadiah was written. Um, Famous, as long as you know when the earthquake was, you can write Yeah, right to the to the day. Yes, but um, I don't know when the earthquake happened. <laughs> but he did mention some kings, so that covers it all, right? Yeah. Um, who? What? What nation did Joel prophesy to? Yeah, Judah, the southern kingdom. But as you see at the first verse, he doesn't tell us when this was. Um, what event happened just before he wrote? A locust invasion, yes. But that, of course, doesn't tell you when it when he wrote because we don't know when the locust invasion was. Um, so here's the book of Joel. Um, short book, but it's a big outline. <laughs> um, our author def- divides it into two halves. A foretaste of the day of the Lord and the salvation of the day of the Lord. It's a really big... This book really emphasizes the day of the Lord. Um, it's too that we don't know when Joel wrote because he might have been the very first one to use that term. At least to use it as much as he did. Um, but Amos uses it as well, and we don't, and we have no idea whether he was before or after Amos. Um, so he's writing to the southern nation of Judah about a locust invasion. And uh, what did the locust? What was the locust invasion supposed to teach the people? Yeah, it, it's kind of a foreshadowing of the final of the final judgment on them. So, what what does Joel suggest that they do as a result of this? Yeah, that's right. He wants them to repent. Yeah, he tells them you need to repent. Now, what sin were they guilty of? If you read the book of Joel, I mean. What sin does he list that they've committed? Not getting much answer there. Yeah, Ron? Well, well, I'm thinking about, and I can't think of it, but when he says return to me, um, obviously they, they had left him for, for other dollars or hundreds. Yeah. Um, I'll have to admit, that was somewhat of a trick question because I cannot find a single mention in the entire book of any sin they've committed. 
It's just very strange. Um, I mean, when we get to Amos, the next book after this, I mean, Amos is not backwards about telling them what their sins were. He, he's got a long list. But Joel, I mean, there's no mention. And here's the strange thing. There's another book in the four we're doing today that's just like this. What's that one? That doesn't tell the people what their sin is. Jonah. Yeah, Jonah, when he preaches Nineveh. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Never tells them why. Never tells them what their sin was. <laughs> they seem to know, yes. And I think Joel thinks these people will know too. He doesn't have to tell them what the sin is. He just has to tell them to repent. And they'll figure out what what the sin is. Yeah, so it's a, certainly an unusual book. Uh, so let's take a look. Um, the first section is a call to mourning and to prayer. In verse 2, Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? This was a locust invasion far exceeding anything they'd ever had before. Um, and... and when something like that happens, Joel wants them to think about why would God be doing this? Why would He be sending you such a terrible thing as this? And he describes it in verse 6. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste, and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. I picked up this picture on the internet of some locusts in Africa. Um, and you can just imagine how terrifying that would be if you're, if you're standing there with all your farm fields and you see this huge horde of um, locusts coming in. I, I read on Wikipedia about locust invasions. The biggest, the biggest known locust invasion covered a region of 200,000 square miles. And the total weight of all the locusts was about, I think they said 12.5 million tons. Um, locusts eat their weight uh, every day. Each locust eats its weight in whatever it's eating. So <laughs> things do not, food, food does not last very long with locusts around. Um, Locusts are grasshoppers. They they are identical to grasshoppers. Um, they're a different phase. In a, the, you have ordinary grasshoppers, and then uh, they get too crowded. And when they when they get too crowded, the, it causes some uh, hormone changes in their bodies, and they all just suddenly swarm. Um, and I don't. Do you, have any of you ever read the Little House on the Prairie books? Uh, yeah, Laura Wilder described the locust invasion when they were out on the plains in, um, I think it was in North Dakota. No, no, it wasn't North Dakota. It was before they moved there. It was a little bit east of there, but Illinois perhaps. Uh, we, we, we used to get them in this country. The, the uh, Rocky Mountain um, locust was a very fearsome locust, but it's extinct now. And, and they, it just wiped out their farm. They actually had to move after that. They just had, they had nothing. Uh, and, and there's just nothing you can do when these locusts come in. It's just, and and it's a good illustration of, of the foolishness of trying to fight against God. And we we've got to do what God says. We can't we can't imagine that that we can somehow successfully resist Him. 
So in, uh, in verse 14, what does He tell the people to do? Yeah, fast, put on sackcloth, mourn. I mean, just let the Lord know that you're sorry. Um, so, um, all right, then um, the next section is the announcement of the day of the Lord. Verse 15, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. <coughs> um, This, this idea of the day of the Lord. Joel's going to mention this a couple more times in the book even. Um, down to verse 20. Apparently there's something else going on here because he says, Even the beasts of the field pant for you, for the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. It's, it sounds like they're also undergoing a drought in addition to the locusts. So it's just disaster. And, and we need to understand, these people do not have grocery stores. I mean, the food they had was what they grew, what they had in the barns, and the locusts can get in anywhere. They can get in the houses, they can get in the barns. Um, and how are you going to stop them? I mean, this, this huge horde. And, and when they leave, they're just leaving devastation behind. Where are you going to get the food? I mean, the, the, the money you had was in your barn. It was what you'd, what you'd saved up. It, it wasn't in silver or, or in gold. Uh, you know, for the average person in, in that day. Um, they were. It was just ter- uh, just a terrible disaster. He describes them in verse three, uh, chapter two, um, in verse three. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. I've got another picture here. This is a close-up of locusts on some green plant, which you can hardly see. I mean. What are you gonna? I mean, any one of those locusts is weak. You could just take it out and squish it in your fingers. Or eat it. Yep. Well, yeah. And the Jews were allowed to eat locusts, um, but of course they're not going to be around long. And I mean, you're going to be out of food for a lot longer than these locusts are going to be around for you to eat them. Um, but I mean, you're, there's no way you're going to save that plant. There's nothing you can do. Whatever is green, they eat. They just you know strip all the leaves off the fig trees. Everything, everything goes with these locusts. Um, verse eleven: The Lord utters His voice before His army. Surely His camp is very great, for strong is He who carries out His word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? Yeah, that's the that's the question of the day: Who can endure the day of the Lord? Um, so then, there's another call for repentance in the the rest of well, the next section in chapter two. Um, in verse 13, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. So, rending means tearing. When would they tear their garments? Yeah, when they're very grieved. When something just very sad happens. And God says, and obviously they would be tearing their garments at this at this occasion. It's just such a disaster. God says, "Well, you need to tear your heart. You, know, you need to really repent." Um, so the next, the second half of the book is called the Salvation in the Day of the Lord, and the first section is the Lord's restoration 
of Judah. And in verse 19, the Lord will answer and say to His people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied and full with them, and I will never again make you reproach among the nations. Of course, this is assuming the first going to repent. This is not just something that's going to happen um, without a, a, a change. And then in... Um, this is this very famous passage, Joel 2, starting in verse 28. It will come about after this that I will pour out My Spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. When did that begin to be fulfilled? Yeah, Peter quoted that in Acts chapter 2. That's the beginning of the fulfillment. Um, and, and he continues to talk about signs and other things like that, which I, th I think we're still in the same period of time that this was predicting, as we're going to see in chapter 3. Um, chapter 3, the coming of the day of the Lord. This is not the day of the Lord that brought the locusts, but this is one way in the future. Um, he mentions in verse 12, "...let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations." Jehoshaphat means Jehovah judges. So that's why he calls it that valley. There he's going to judge the nations. But you read in this section, and he's, he's commanding these nations to come for a battle. This really reminds me of um, the, the, uh, the last few chapters of Ezekiel when, when he talked about Gog and Magog. He, God ordered them to come, bring all the nations with you and attack the people of Israel, and then God wiped them out. Um, this sounds very much the same thing. I think it might be the same thing. And then, after that battle is all over, in verse 18, he says, In that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. What does that remind you of? A spring going out from the house of the Lord, the temple? <laughs> what book? Ezekiel, yeah, the very end of the book of Ezekiel, you got the water coming out of the Lord's house. I would assume this is predicting the very same thing. So you have, in Ezekiel, you have the battle of Gog and Magog, and then after that you have the temple described, and then the, the water going out of the temple to actually turn the Dead Sea into fresh water. And in, in here at the end of Joel, you have the same thing, this battle of all the nations. God judges them in the valley of Jehoshaphat. God Judgment Valley, and then he blesses his people. Are right, any questions on Joel before we move on? All right. Um, when did Amos prophesy? Uzziah's reign. Yeah, Uzziah's reign in Judah, and whose reign in Israel? Jeroboam. And did he prophesy against Israel or Judah? Yeah, Amos is a prophet against Israel. Even though, where was he from? Yeah, he was from, from Judah. Yeah, But God told him to go prophesy against Israel. So here we have, here's the reign of Uzziah in the south. Here's the reign of Jeroboam II in the north. They overlap some. So, um, probably toward the end of the book of, of the reign of Jeroboam. And it says he, it was two years before the earthquake. Which sounds to me like he had a fairly short period of prophecy. It sounds like he just went in and did his prophesying and then two years later got sent an earthquake kind of like a amen <laughs> to what Amos had been prophesying. 
Um, the book begins in verse 2. The Lord roars from Zion and from Jerusalem He utters His voice and the shepherds pasture grounds mourn and the summit of Carmel cries up. There's a big judgment coming. And He lists a bunch of nations this judgment comes on. I, I've done this in wrong order. I should have shown you the outline first. We've got six points in the outline. Um, and we're going to start with the first one, the judgment on Israel's neighbors. And I want to show you a map here of, of these neighbors. Uh, what's the first nation that he, he pronounces a judgment on in verse 3? Damascus. Yeah, Damascus, which is the capital of Syria. <clears throat> and here we have Damascus up here to the northeast of Israel. Israel's the target nation that uh, Amos is prophesying to. But he starts with a prophecy against Damascus for their sins. What's the second nation he prophesies against? Gaza, Gaza which is a, is a major city in Philistia. Um, here's Gaza down here. So we started in the northeast, now we're in the southwest. <laughs> We've kind of jumped across Israel. What's the third one? Where's Tyre? Yeah, that's up here in Phoenicia. There's Tyre. So now we're up due north from Israel. What's the next one? Edom, where's that? All the way south, down here. Alright, what's the one after Edom then? Ammon, where is that? East, yeah, here they are, the Ammonites over here to the east. What's the one after Ammon? We're going into chapter 2 now. And where's that? Yeah, down here, just east of the Dead Sea. Alright, what's the one after Moab? Judah. Judah. Where's that? Just directly south of Israel. Yeah. So we've gone all the way around in kind of a random order. What's the next nation? <laughs> yeah, this is kind of an interesting technique that Amos uses. Because with each one of these, the people are going to be listening saying, yeah, those terrible Syrians. Yeah, those terrible Philistines. Those Edomites. Those heathens. <laughs> and then he gets to Judah. They're not exactly heathens. But yeah, Judah's not good either. <laughs> well, now they don't have any excuse. If God has judged all these other nations for their sins, and they've amended it, which I'm sure they did, what can they do when, when God says, now I'm going to judge you too? <laughs> yeah, that's not prophesied anymore. But you know, whenever we judge anyone else, we admit that God is just to judge sins wherever they might be, including in our own lives. <clears throat> so, now we have the judgment on Israel, in, starting in chapter 2, verse 6. For three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not revoke its punishment. And he goes into more detail on their sins than he did on any of the other nations. Because they sell the righteous for needy, for, for money, I'm sorry, and the needy for a pair of sandals. And it's just terrible. That, I mean, one of the major issues in Amos is the, the attitude the rich people have for the poor. They just beat them down and took whatever they had. Um, it's just it's terrible. You, you remember the story that uh, the prophet Nathan told to David about the rich guy that had all the sheep and then he stole his, his neighbor's sheep and David got all upset about it. 
Well, these people are living that parable out in their lives. Um, they got all this money, but they're, they just continue to beat, beat on the poor people to take more of their money away. Um, so then in, um, in chapter 3, we begin a section of oracles against Israel. Uh, chapter 3, verse 2, You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. So what's God going to do since they're the only ones He's chosen? He's going to punish them for their sins. Yeah, being chosen by God doesn't mean, hey, you get a free pass, you can do whatever you want. Being chosen by God means you have to be holy. Like God is holy. An oracle is um, basically it's another word for prophecy. Um, it's a speech that, that comes from God. Um, yeah. Other questions? All right, let's see here. Um, chapter 4, verse 1. I, li- I like this. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring now that we may drink. He calls them cows, these women. Um, I don't think most of them would like to be called cows, but what do you normally do with a cow? You, all you can do is eat it. I mean, a cow is... I mean, first you feed it. The cow just sits around waiting to be fed. Or else you can put it out in the pasture; it'll just eat the crap. And then when it finally gets fattened up, you slaughter it. And so he's calling these women cows. I mean, they're doing nothing, nothing useful. They're just, they're just getting fattened up so they can be slaughtered in the day of judgment. And see, they, they don't think they're, they're guilty of beating up on the poor. Although they say to their husband, hey, get, get us some more you know, wine to drink. Where are their husbands going to get more wine to drink? By beating up on the poor. The, the, the wives are part of this. Verse 12. Therefore thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this, Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Is that something you would like to do? <laughs> I would not like to meet God when He's talking to me like that. <laughs> we already saw in the book of Joel what happened when it just for, with the precursor of the day of the Lord with that, with that locust thing. <clears throat> Chapter 5, verse 4. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek Me that you may live. They were seeking everything else except for God. In verse 10, they hate him who reproves in the gate and they abhor him who speaks with integrity. <laughs> they didn't like Amos, that's for sure. Therefore, because you impose heavy rent on the poor and exact a tribute of grain from them, though you have built houses of well-hewn stone, yet you will not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, yet you will not drink their wine. Now, who who's the other prophet we've already studied that prophesied at the exact same time as this, at the time of Jeroboam the second? We did it last week. Hosea, yeah, Hosea prophesied at the exact same time. We talked back then that many of these people were going to live to see the final carrying away into captivity of Israel. It's that close to the end. So I don't think he's exaggerating when he's saying, you know, you've built these fancy houses, but you're not going to live in them. They might get to move in, yes, but they're not going to stay there very long. Um, they're beating up on the poor, and God's going to beat up on them. Is what's going to happen. So then, 
we have announcements of exile starting in chapter 5, verse 18. Um, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. Now, I, I don't know what they're expecting with the day of the Lord, but obviously they're not expecting what it's going to be. And maybe they think the day of the Lord is going to be a day of judgment on everybody else. That is the way Amos started, you know, with all the judgments on all these other nations, of which were not being very nice to Israel. Maybe they thought the day of the Lord would be the time when they get rescued, but, Joel, but, but Amos says, I don't think so. Verse 21, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. It wasn't that what they were doing was unscriptural. He wasn't objecting to that. What he was objecting to was the fact that their lives didn't correspond with what they were claiming when they came, quote, to, you know, as we would say, come to church. They do whatever they want six days a week, and then on Sunday they claim to worship God, and, and God's not impressed. I, I know for them it was Sabbath, but okay. <laughs> Translating it for us. Verse 24 But let justice. Roll down like waters, and righteousness, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. <laughs> That's powerful, isn't it? Um, chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to, those, and to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria. The distinguishment of the foremost of nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Yeah, these rich people, they, they were fun. In the days of Jeroboam, it, the, the nation was wealthy. Now the poor people were suffering as Amos is telling us. They're beating up on the poor people. But the rich people are doing great. And they're at ease. Life is good. And, and Amos says, Woe to you people. Woe to you. Verse 4, Those who recline on beds of ivory and sprawl on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves in the midst of the stall. We're talking about rich people. Now, he had mentioned the ivory before. In chapter 3, verse 15, he talks about the houses of ivory will also perish. The houses weren't actually built out of ivory, though nor were the beds built out of ivory, but they, they would ha have ivory inlay in them, like I've got on the screen here. This, um, this ivory carving was found in Samaria. It dates to the time of Amos, or maybe a hundred years before that time. And this is the kind of thing that the rich people would, would put all over their walls, and no doubt on their beds as well as, as he's describing it here. They had money to burn, but it was not going to last. Amos is saying, woe, woe to you. Alright, chapter 7 through 9, visions of divine retribution. Chapter 7, verse 14. Um, this is... Um, Amos has been prophesying against the house of Jeroboam. And so the priest, Amaziah, rebukes Amos and says, hey, you need to go back to the south where you can make some money. You're not going to do so hot up here. And so in verse 14, Amos replied to Amaziah, I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. I am a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. <laughs> in other words, I'm not up here to make money. I'm up here because God told me to be. <laughs> and then he prophesies against Amaziah. What's going to happen to him? It's, it's pretty, pretty terrible. Um, chapter 8, verse 11. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. If, if they 
refuse to listen to Amos, the time is going to come when they won't have anyone to listen to. They'll just be, just be the, themselves by themselves. In chapter 9, he, he talk, he's talking about this great day of the Lord coming in verse 2. Though they dig into Sheol, what's Sheol? Look at that, means the grave, the underworld. Though they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. You can't get away from God. That's what he's saying. You, you, you rich people think you can you know, make your fortresses strong and all this. You can't get away from God. And then the last section, restoration. All, all these prophets, they always end with, a, with hope for the future, although it's going to be long after these people are dead. In verse 11, "...and that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David." And wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. What's he talking about? The booth of David that has fallen down. Now what? Well, I think he's talking about the the house of David. The family of David is like as the house, and the house had fallen down. It, it there wasn't anybody reigning in on David's line. There was at the time Amos prophesied, but there was going to come a time when it would be completely fallen down. So what's the fulfillment of it? When is He going to raise it up again? With Jesus. Yes, He was a true Son of David. Alright, so any questions on Amos? Now we come to a one-chapter book. So we only have two points in our outline. Obadiah. Uh, who did Obadiah prophesy against? Yeah, Edom. Yeah, that, that nation at the very south on our map that we were looking at. Um, and in verse 3, he says, The arrogance of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the class of the rock in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to earth? Um, this is a picture in the area of Edom. Uh, this, um, this is near a, a city they call Selah, which means rock, I think. Um, and you can see how the people who were living in this area would say, who can touch us? You know, no, no, no enemy can, can get to us here. They, and of course, they had great pride as a result. You remember uh, a month or two ago, I showed you a slide of a narrow crevice in the rock, the same crevice they used in the Indiana Jones movie. Um, that's also in Edom. That was that's in the entrance to the city of Petra, another of the cities of Edom. So they just felt like that, you know, we're just safe, you know, no one can touch us. But he mentions their sin in verse 11. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, talking about Jerusalem, and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Even though they were not the ones that attacked Jerusalem, they were the ones that were happy to benefit from the invasion of Jerusalem. And instead of helping their brother, they were, they were taking advantage. He mentions verse 14, cutting down their fugitives. All of that. Alright, so then part two, Edom in the day of the Lord. Um, and so he, he prophesies in verse 15, as you have done, it will be done to you. That's certainly just. But the far future talks about blessings for God's people. And it finally ends up in verse 21. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's.
Alright, any questions on Obadiah? Yeah, Ralph. <coughs> the people that were in here, were some of those Jews? Or were they relatives of the Jews? Or? They were descendants of Esau. They were. Yeah, Esau, the brother of Jacob. So that's why you called them brothers. Yeah, that's exactly why I called them brother. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, good, good question. Alright, so now we go to Jonah. It's got a huge outline. I'm only going to deal with the major points. Point one, Jonah flees his mission. Point two, Jonah reluctantly fulfills his mission. <laughs> and that's the story of the, uh, the book of Jonah. Um, so, we'll start off with Jonah flees his mission in chapter one. What was his mission? Well, the, the enemy city of Nineveh. Yeah, yeah. Verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But instead, where did he head for? Tarshish. Tarshish. Where is Tarshish? Spain. Yes, it is in Spain. This this map actually comes from, it's a Genesis chapter 10 map. It's very, it goes way back. It's the only one I could find that had Tarshish in it. Um, so here's Tarshish there in southern Spain. The ships uh, of that day would probably have been um, owned by the Phoenicians. Uh, here you have Canaan, so the Phoenicians are right around there on the coast. And that's a long voyage. That, that was the farthest that we have record of that, that, that they would go normally to Tarshish. Um, so why did... Jonah picked Tarshish. Because it was a metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> it was going the exact opposite direction. Because right around here, this song that right around here is Nineveh on the Tigris River there. So yeah, it was the opposite direction. Farthest you could go in the opposite direction, so that was his goal. And um, of course he didn't get there, but that's as we the story is of course very familiar. Um, by the way, there's no mention of time here. But does anyone know when Jonah lived? Um, it's in Kings. He was one of the prophets in the days of Jeroboam II. So we're at the very same time frame as Hosea and Amos. But it has nothing to do with Hosea or Amos because it's all about Nineveh. Except it's not. <laughs> what? Is this is the purpose of this book to be a prophecy against Nineveh? It's not, is it? What's the purpose of the book? Well, that's a, that's that's the the first lesson certainly. Teach us to go where God tells us to go. But I think there's something a little bit more going on here. By the time you get to the end of the book. Yeah, you, Ralph. Yeah, everyone everyone is is welcome to repent. And John? Well, I was just going to say that God loves all people. God loves all people, yes. And the Jews didn't believe that. And even in the New Testament, you see the same attitude. The Jews, they think that because God singled them out specially as the only people that were His own special people, God must dislike everyone else. And they misunderstood the reason God singled them out was because they were going to be a light to the whole world. But they didn't want to do that. They wanted to have all the light for themselves. And this was the attitude in, in, in uh, Jonah's day. We hate these people in Nineveh. Of course, the people in Nineveh were, that was the capital of Assyria. They were the big enemies 
of Israel at the time. They were the ones that eventually took Israel captive. So you can see why Jonah might not be too keen on getting them to repent. <laughs> so anyway, um, how did God get Jonah's attention in chapter 1? Big storm. Yeah, big storm. And, and it was so big that the sailors knew this could not be anything natural. It had to be caused for a reason. And they cast lots and the lot fell on on Jonah, yeah, and uh, so, and he told him, "You have to, you have to respect Jonah at least for his courage. Throw me in, the, throw him overboard, and they'll save you." <laughs> so they finally did. They didn't want to, but they finally did, and the sea immediately calmed down. Which reminds us of what? Reminds of Jesus calming the sea, yes. And then you have the great fish that swallowed him up. And how long was he in the stomach of the fish? Three days. Yeah. Three days and three nights, which is exactly what the way Jesus described his burial after his fiction. Yeah. So chapter two is his prayer. I'm not going to go over this, but um, I will mention that it comes from the Psalms. Um, he starts with Psalm 18, and and he refers to by, uh, practically every verse in this prayer comes from the Psalms. It's and it's an interesting lesson to us. I mean, if if we spend a lot of time in God's Word and get familiar with it, then we're, when we're in some place where it's too dark for us to read, <laughs> we'll still be able to remember and use it. And that's what Jonah was doing. He was remembering these psalms he had studied for so long and was applying them to his situation. They certainly applied very well to his situation. God heard his prayer. Verse 10, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. So, we go to part 2. Jonah reluctantly fulfills his mission. Because in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. <laughs> no mention of what's gone before. He just, okay, we're going to do this over again. <laughs> and this time Jonah went. Because he had of course learned the first lesson of the book, which is, you can't run away from God. So, what was his message to Nineveh? Yet forty days. Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Did you tell them to repent? No. Did you tell them that they could avoid this if they repented? No. <laughs> they just figured this out themselves, didn't they? In fact, they're not even sure. They're just hopeful, and they 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 called a fast. They put a sackcloth. It was an extreme fast. Even animals had to fast. It was so extreme. And so in verse 10, what did God do about it? Relented. Yeah, He relented. He wasn't going to bring it on them. Um, and what was Jonah's reaction? Displeased. Yeah, he wanted, he wanted God. I mean, just imagine the kind of prophets this guy was. I mean, if someone preaches and tells you you're going to hell, you don't want him to be happy about it. You want him to be sad about it. But I don't think Jonah was sad telling these people, you have 40 days and this is going to be overthrown. And yet, for all that, people listen. Now, it doesn't say why they listen. I wonder if maybe they even might have even known the story of how he got there. Um, the, the Bible doesn't tell us. But, but, no, but Jonah's mad. He's really mad. And so what does the Lord ask him in verse 4? Do you have a good reason to be angry? Folks, when any one of us get angry, 
we need to ask ourselves that question. How often will our answer be about as embarrassing as Jonah's answer? I mean, although Jonah doesn't realize it yet. God has to teach him this lesson. So, Jonah goes out. Why, why is he hanging around? Waiting for a show. Yeah, he's hoping for a show. That's right. <laughs> I mean, he did see Nineveh repent. He, know, he knows God has, has relented. But, you know, this repentance might not last very long. These people are really bad. So, he's going to wait to see whether, whether... And we've seen that happening in Israel and Judah where the people would repent and as soon as the army left, then they would, they would start doing the very sins they repented of. So, yeah, I'm thinking he's hoping that's going to happen. Well, God helped him out. What did God do for him? Gave him shade. Oh, that was so nice. And Jonah was so happy about this. This is a hot place. Nineveh is, you know, it's certainly the sunny south. (laughs) But then what did God do? (laughs) Took the plant away. Uh, And plus, he sent this scorching east wind and the sun coming down, and he feels so bad. What do he want to do? wants to die yeah. so question comes up God asks him and what's the question he asks <laughs> you have good reason to be angry <clears throat> and what's his answer <laughs> I sure do <laughs> and so then the, <clears throat> we've learned the lesson of the book you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which did not you did not cause to grow which came up overnight and perished overnight should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand, as well as many animals? I assume he's talking about children there, which would mean it had a huge population. Yeah. Um, you know, Jonah cares nothing about all these people. Just cares about the plant that shades them. And how well does that describe us so often? Because that's the thing that, that's the lesson for us. Thousands of years later, we're still living the same kind of lives, and God says, "Don't be like that." <laughs> Any questions on Jonah then? No, I think you preached my sermon this morning. Oh, you're going to pre- are you going to preach on Jonah? No, no, just the ideas. Oh, okay. All right, good. Well, you, you can you can play it up. Yeah. All right. Well, I appreciate everyone's help this morning. <laughs> I kind of thought he wasn't good. I called him last night. He never did answer me. He never did respond. Oh, he didn't call me. Is he in Bangor? But he must be depressed, huh?